Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Any number of men who may reasonably be calculated on would find no difficulty in marching by the route we came, with baggage wagons, field artillery, and all the usual appendages of a small army. And if all the route to Santa Fe should be of the same description, in case of war I would pledge my life and what is infinitely dearer, my honor, for the successful march of a reasonable body of troops into the province of New Mexico. Lieutenant Zebulon Pike, October 1806. While the Jefferson administration was undoubtedly occupied with matters related to the Burr conspiracy in late 1806 and early 1807, there was still much more happening in terms of government business. Thus, before we focus in on the Burr trial in Richmond, I thought we should take some time to get caught up on other matters. It is with this intent in mind, dear listener, that I welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. It's rare that you meet someone who completely changed your life. It's even rarer to have them become your partner in life through the celebrations and the challenges. I still pinch myself when I think of the first time we locked eyes just over 19 years ago, and I knew that my life would never be the same again. Je t'aime avec tout mon cœur, maman. As we've been talking a good deal about the West in recent episodes, let's start there with the intro quote from Zebulon Pike. As discussed in episode 3.32, the initial goal of Pike's expedition was to return five Osages, an Oto, and two Pawnees to their villages in the Great Plains. Thus, the party set out west from St. Louis on July 15th and went up the Missouri River to the Osage River, quote, in a pair of flat-bottom boats that Pike referred to as barges or bateaux. Pike's second-in-command of this expedition was none other than Lieutenant James B. Wilkinson, son of our old friend General James Wilkinson. In mid-August, Wilkinson was charged with escorting the native people's home overland, while Pike and the remainder of the party dealt with their way on the river being blocked by fallen trees and bits of debris. With the help of horses sent by the Osage, Pike and the remainder of the expedition made their way to the Osage villages. They then continued on to the Pawnee village that was home to the two Pawnee delegates, and despite a difficult journey, they finally arrived at the village, which was close to the modern-day border of the states of Kansas and Nebraska on September 25th. There, they learned that a large party of Spanish soldiers had visited the village just a few weeks prior. While Pike assumed they were looking for his group, Historian Jared Orsi asserted that they were more likely in search of the Lewis and Clark expedition. This news of the Spanish posed a couple of threats for Pike and his expedition. First, given the recent tensions between the U.S. and Spain over matters in the West, there was a threat that this force might at the very least turn Pike and his men back, if not capturing them, or worse. Also, with the Americans itching to develop more trade links with the peoples of the Plains, the fact that the Spanish had gotten to the Pawnee first and had made a favorable impression threatened American designs in the area. Thus, Pike met with the Pawnee chiefs and offered them an American flag as a sign of friendship. 
This flag, however, did not come without conditions. If they accept it, the Pawnee would have to abandon their ties with the Spanish as well as, quote, abandon raiding other Indians. Neither of these were realistic demands and only served to anger the Pawnee, which introduced a new threat for Pike and his expedition. At this point, they were rather dependent on Pawnee goodwill to continue their expedition. In particular, they would need horses from the native peoples to proceed. As noted by Orsi, quote, Authority in the Pawnee village was precariously balanced, and Pike's arrival disrupted it. The longer they stayed, the worse matters got. Finally, in early October, they acquired enough horses to continue their journey. But when they broke camp on the morning of October 7th, it wasn't clear that the Pawnee would let them leave. But after a negotiation with the head chief, the expedition was permitted to depart. Despite the threat that the Spanish party represented, the Pike expedition chose to carry forth on the path that the Spanish had taken upon their departure from the Pawnee village. Again from Orsi, quote, As the Americans followed the Spaniards' several-week-old path across the plains, Pike's men counted the remains of the Spanish campfires and piles of livestock manure. By this crude calculation, Pike guessed he was following a contingent in which both livestock and men numbered at least in the hundreds. In mid-October, they arrived at the Arkansas River, and Lieutenant Wilkinson, five American soldiers, and two Osages set off at the end of the month downriver to return to the United States with, quote, letters and copies of maps and other records documenting the expedition's route and findings, while the remainder of the expedition continued on in search of the headwaters of the Arkansas. November brought more hardship for the expedition as the weather turned colder, foraging grew more difficult, and they had an encounter with a Pawnee party that took some of their supplies. At this point, as noted by historian Julie Fenster, Pike and his men were headed across modern-day eastern Colorado, proceeding due west towards the Rocky Mountains. As they had set off in the summer, they had only one layer of cotton clothes, no coats, no socks, and headed towards the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, you can see where I'm going with this. They kept following the Arkansas River as it started to climb into the mountains and split into smaller creeks. Pike then had the bright idea of climbing one of the mountains in order to seek out which of the creeks was in fact the source of the Arkansas River. With three soldiers accompanying him, they set out for a peak that looked to be only a day's march away. Four days later, it seemed like the peak was still a day's march away, despite having gone heaven knows how many miles towards it already. Thus, they turned around and returned to the rest of the party. December was a frustrating month for them, as food supplies ran low and Pike discovered that he had been, quote, leading the expedition in a 70-mile circle. January 1807 proved little better, and by mid-month, Pike had actually set off from the group with the excuse of going to hunt for food, but in reality, Pike, quote, was planning where to die. Thankfully, as he was doing this, he came across a buffalo, and he and his men were saved. The upward trend of their fortunes continued in late January when they spotted what they thought was the Red River, but was, in fact, the Rio Grande. As noted by Fenster, quote, Pike was in Spanish territory, a fact that he surely suspected and perhaps intended. Pike directed his men to construct a small fortress and gave a civilian who had been traveling with the party permission to go to Santa Fe as Pike made preparations to travel east on the river. That journey, however, would not happen. In late February, the fortress was approached by a small detachment of Spanish soldiers. The Spanish had finally caught up with them, 
and with his men exhausted and in no shape to even put up a mild resistance, Pike surrendered, and the party was taken into custody. They were taken to New Mexico, then to Chihuahua in what is now northern Mexico, and were held, quote, on charges of trespassing. Only one of the men died while in custody, a private who ended up in an altercation with another member of the Pike expedition. Later in the spring, the Spanish ultimately released Zebulon Pike and most of his men. As noted by Fenster, quote, the Spanish officials had made their point about Americans respecting Spanish territory. But had they been captured a few months earlier, before Wilkinson had made the agreement at the Sabine frontier, as discussed in episode 3.33, things could have gone much worse for Pike and his men. Though the expedition had not accomplished all of its goals, Pike had made good notes and had succeeded in his charge, quote, to procure and bring back to the government information about the tremendous Louisiana territory which the United States had recently acquired, as well as intelligence on the Spanish provinces of Nuevo Mexico and Chihuahua. While it would take some time for this to pay off for Jeffersonian ambitions, it was an important step in the westward push of at least a segment of the American population. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. For now, let's turn our attention eastward as we must check in on affairs in Europe as it's been a bit since we've done so. When last we turned our attention that way in episode 3.30, French Emperor Napoleon had scored a major victory with the Battle of Austerlitz and the end of the War of the Third Coalition. Napoleon, however, was not content with that victory. On July 12, 1806, the Act of Confederation was signed, which took, quote, 350 principalities, duchies, and other territories and melded them together in, quote, a mere 39 states, which then formed a confederation known as the Confederation of the Rhine. As described by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoem, quote, The new Confederation of the Rhine was a strictly controlled satellite complex, the main purposes of which were defense and economic union, not to mention the annual subsidies each member state was required to pay Napoleon and France. Naturally, this intrusion of Napoleon's authority into Central Europe upset Austria once more. But more importantly, it angered Prussia, which had, to this point, stayed out of the Napoleonic Wars despite its ties to other coalition belligerents, including Russia. Despite Napoleon naming family members as the heads of state of numerous conquered nations and his continued push to control all of Italy, there was still, in mid-1806, an opportunity for peace. The Grenville government of Great Britain once again engaged in peace talks with France, but Emperor Napoleon rejected the treaty negotiated by his foreign minister our old friend Talleyrand, and an envoy of British Foreign Secretary Charles James Fox, despite the fact that it contained major concessions to France. With the failure of those negotiations, it was clear that something had to be done. Prussian King Friedrich Wilhelm issued an ultimatum, giving Napoleon a deadline of October 8th to respond to Prussia's grievances. But little did the king realize that Emperor Napoleon and his forces were already on the move. On October 9th, French forces engaged Prussian troops in battle at Schles, thus beginning the war. 
The major battle, however, would come with the Battle of Jena Alstad on October 14th. The battle was a decisive victory for Napoleon's Grand Armée, and they kept up their march to Berlin, the Prussian capital, putting down any remaining resistance. On October 27th, the French emperor was in the Prussian capital and, quote, went immediately to the tomb of Frederick the Great to pay his respects to the one German warrior he most admired. As described by Schoen, quote, within just 33 days, Napoleon had utterly destroyed the Prussian army. Of the 160,000 or so men comprising the entire Prussian army, only 35,000 had escaped the French, giving Napoleon one of the most complete victories in history. Although because of the king's escape, peace negotiations for the official surrender of Prussia were delayed for another eight months. It would be from Berlin that Napoleon would issue a decree on November 21st that would attempt to take another member of the coalition out of the battle. What would come to be known as the Berlin Decree read as follows, quote, The British Isles are hereby declared to be in a state of blockade. All commerce and correspondence with the British Isles are forbidden. If Napoleon couldn't launch a military expedition against Britain, he could cut them off economically and diplomatically. Again from Schoen, quote, The continental system was now in effect, and although it initially hurt England, it hardly proved the stranglehold envisaged by Napoleon. In fact, Napoleon's mighty new empire leaked like Swiss cheese. Napoleon's own family proved to be among the worst offenders, openly permitting their ports, cities, and land routes to be used for the exchange of British commerce. The Berlin Decree did, however, provoke a response from the British government in the form of the Orders in Council of January 7, 1807, which put, quote, France and all its allies, in turn, in a state of international blockade. Even neutral countries were forbidden from trading with France and its allies on the continent. This could not come as worse news for two American diplomats in London who had just successfully negotiated a treaty attempting to ease tensions between Great Britain and the United States. When last we left Peace Commissioners James Monroe and William Pinckney in London in episode 3.32, they were still negotiating with the Greenville Ministry's representatives, Lord Holland and Baron Auckland. Though the foursome got along well and mixed business with pleasure as they held discussions over dinners and trips to the opera, they also had, quote, several long and warm arguments on various points related to commerce and trade. They also could not come to an agreement about a key topic from the American point of view, the issue of impressment. Finally, though, with the clock ticking as the Non-Importation Act passed earlier in the year, as discussed in episode 3.31, was set to come into effect in November, Holland and Auckland got enough leeway from Prime Minister Grenville to provide assurances to the American negotiators regarding impressment. They shared with Monroe and Pinckney the instructions that they had managed to procure, which called, quote, for the observance of the greatest caution in the impressing of British seamen, and that the strictest care shall be taken to preserve the citizens of the United States from any molestation or injury, and that immediate prompt redress shall be afforded upon any representation of injury sustained by them. While it wasn't a commitment to end the practice, nor was it something that would be written into the actual treaty, Monroe and Pinckney agreed it was likely the best they were going to get. Thus, they finalized the language in the last days of 1806, and on New Year's Eve, the four diplomats signed what has come to be called the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty. Historian Donald Hickey summed up the treaty's terms as follows. Quote, 
the United States secured a broader definition of neutral rights in exchange for a promise of benevolent neutrality. The treaty, as negotiated, renewed some provisions of the Jay Treaty, as well as resolved most of the disputes with trade in the West Indies. In exchange, Monroe and Pinckney had guaranteed, quote, that no economic sanctions would be applied to the British government. The treaty was immediately ridiculed by some in Britain, despite Holland and Auckland's attempts to defend their efforts. And, knowing that it fell short of the expectations of the Jefferson administration, Monroe and Pinckney took a few days after the signing to craft their message back to Secretary of State Madison. The two American diplomats framed the negotiated treaty, quote, as a starting point for further negotiations. There was no way they were going to get all they wanted with one round of negotiations. But given the assurances that they had received from their British counterparts, they felt that the practice of impressment, quote, would be essentially, if not completely abandoned. Unfortunately for Monroe and Pinckney's case, however, they did not actually include a copy of the instructions that Auckland and Holland had received regarding impressment when they sent their letter and a copy of the treaty back to the U.S. government in Washington. This would have an impact on how it was received by the Jefferson administration. But before we get to that, we have to discuss the shifting political climate in London that would further complicate Monroe and Pinckney's mission. Following the death of Charles James Fox, the Foreign Secretary, in October 1806, British Prime Minister Lord Grenville was faced with a choice. His government had been formed in the midst of a crisis with the death of Grenville's predecessor, William Pitt the Younger. Though Grenville had tried to bring together all of the factions of the British political system, the Pittites remained unreconciled. Thus, Grenville decided to call for a new election in order to legitimize his authority. The king, George III, disagreed. He hadn't been keen on inviting Grenville to form a new ministry to begin with, and now he felt that Grenville was wasting time and resources. The government already had a sizable majority in Parliament, What more did the PM need to get on with it? Ultimately, the king called for the election, though, as noted by historian Dick Leonard, the king, quote, refrained from making the customary royal financial contribution to the government's electoral expenses. Though the election went Grenville's way, and he expanded his majority in Parliament by 20 to 30 seats, as noted by Dick Leonard, quote, the cost to him of alienating the king was disproportional. Indeed, it would ultimately not be the setbacks faced by the Fourth Coalition in its efforts against France that would bring Grenville down, but rather a bill supported by the ministry aiming for reforms towards Catholic emancipation in Ireland. Staunchly opposing any reform efforts, King George would not only force the ministry to withdraw the bill, but demanded that all of the ministers agree to, quote, never again raise the question of Catholic relief in his lifetime. This was a step too far for Grenville and his new foreign secretary, and with their refusal to provide such assurances, the king dismissed the Ministry of All the Talents on March 25, 1807. Lord Grenville had only been Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for one year and 42 days. To form a new ministry, King George turned to a member of Parliament who had written a letter of support during the king's dispute with the Grenville Ministry, urging the king to stand firm. This member of the House of Lords had, in fact, actually been Prime Minister for a few months in 1783 before being replaced by William Pitt the Younger for reasons far beyond the scope of this podcast to discuss. Now, decades later, the King turned to William Henry Cavendish Bentinck, the third Duke of Portland, to form a new government. 
Portland was, upon assuming office, 68 years old and, despite having been a political force for decades, quote, had seldom risen above the level of mediocrity. Despite his concerns about his health, Portland accepted the offer from King George and pulled together a new government of Pitt supporters who had opposed the Ministry of All the Talents. Some names that will be important in U.S.-British relations moving forward that came into Portland's ministry included Spencer Percival as Chancellor of the Exchequer, Viscount Castlereagh as Secretary for War and the Colonies, Lord Hawkesbury, who soon after assumed the Earldom of Liverpool as Home Secretary, and George Canning as Foreign Secretary. If James Monroe and William Pinckney wanted to negotiate further with the British government, it would be with this new team of political leaders with whom they would have to deal. This change in government would also pose problems across the pond for the newly arrived British minister to the U.S., David Erskine. Erskine and his family had arrived in Washington, D.C. on November 3, 1806, and, after a month-long visit to Philadelphia for his American-born wife, Frances Erskine, to visit with her family, they settled in to, quote, the newly remodeled embassy in the U.S. capital city. Though Erskine made generous overtures to the Jefferson administration as he assumed his new role in a time of turbulence and constantly shifting conditions, as noted by Spencer Tucker and David Roeder, quote, Erskine felt the brunt of Madison's temperament, particularly when he had to officially notify the Secretary of State of certain unpleasant matters, such as the new Orders in Council in response to the Berlin Decree. We'll see in future episodes how Erskine's mission goes, but for now, let's shift back to the administration. London was not the only national capital seeing change in the highest levels of government. As mentioned in episode 3.33, Attorney General John Breckinridge had been absent from the seat of government for a bit due to illness. Unfortunately for Breckinridge, he did not recover from the spout of illness and died just a few days after his 46th birthday on December 14, 1806. Despite his prominent role as Jefferson supporter in the Senate, and even Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin identifying him as an up-and-coming politician poised to take a leading role in the nation, John Breckinridge, due to circumstances and his short tenure, had not had an opportunity to make much of an impact when he was brought into the administration. This new vacancy presented a unique challenge for the president as he and his government needed guidance to address various legal questions posed by the Burr conspiracy. For this advice, and to fill the role permanently, Jefferson turned to someone who we've encountered a couple of times thus far, most recently in episode 3.25. Caesar Augustus Rodney was born into the prominent Rodney family of Delaware in January 1772. Both Rodney's father and uncle served in the Continental Congress, and his uncle had been a signer of the Declaration of Independence, while his father was later appointed as a judge for the Mississippi Territory, as we saw last episode. Thus, it wasn't long after the younger Rodney completed his legal studies at the University of Pennsylvania and began his law practice that he found himself elected state office. He served in the Delaware State House of Representatives from 1796 until 1802, when he received encouragement from none other than President Jefferson himself to run for the U.S. House of Representatives, a race which he won. As we talked about in past episodes, This put Rodney in a position to play a role in the impeachment trials of U.S. District Court Judge John Pickering and Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. With this rise in his prominence in the party and his ties to the administration, it made sense that Jefferson turned to Rodney to assume the role of Attorney General. Again, as we've discussed in the past, as this was a part-time role, 
the fact that the nation's capital was not that far from Rodney's native Delaware would make it more feasible for him to manage his personal affairs while still attending to the administration's business. Rodney, however, would not be the only change to the legal makeup of the federal government. Supreme Court Justice William Patterson had been on the court since the Washington presidency, but in either 1803 or 1804, while carrying out his circuit riding duties, the coach he was riding in went off the road into a 10-foot embankment. Patterson survived the accident, but he spent his last couple of years in ill health until finally, on September 9, 1806, he passed away at his daughter's home in Albany, New York. Thus, President Jefferson had a Supreme Court seat to fill. Though he was well into his second term at this point, this was only the second vacancy on the court in Jefferson's presidency. As Justice Patterson had been from New Jersey, the president turned his attention to potential candidates in that region. It doesn't seem to have taken long for him to settle on Henry Brockholz Livingston. We've talked about other members of the Livingston family in this podcast, and like those other Livingstons, this Livingston was also originally from New York, having been born in New York City in 1757. His family soon moved to New Jersey, where his father served as governor of that state during the American Revolution. Henry Brockholz studied at the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton, at the same time as Jefferson's future Secretary of State, James Madison. Livingston served for a time in the Continental Army during the war, but left at the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in order to serve as Private Secretary to his brother-in-law, John Jay, when Jay traveled to Madrid to serve as the U.S. Minister of Spain. Unfortunately, Jay and Livingston ended up not seeing eye-to-eye, and Livingston on his return trip to the U.S., was taken prisoner when the ship he was traveling on was captured by a British frigate. Once released and returned home to New York, Livingston turned his attention to studying for a legal career. In addition to practicing law, Livingston, like other members of the family, got involved in politics and served three terms in the New York State Assembly. As John Jay became a greater force in the Federalist Party, Livingston and other members of his branch of the family increasingly turned from the Federalists, with whom they had previously been aligned, to become more involved in the Democratic-Republican faction. Indeed, Livingston worked hard for the Jefferson campaign effort in 1800, as well as other key Democratic-Republican campaigns in New York in the early 1800s. As such, he was named to a position on the New York Supreme Court in 1802, which we mentioned in episode 3.6 of this podcast. Jefferson had briefly toyed with the idea of appointing Livingston to the U.S. Supreme Court when a seat came open in 1804, but as we saw in episode 3.24, in order to maintain a geographic balance, the president ultimately appointed William Johnson of South Carolina. With this new vacancy being from the Mid-Atlantic, however, Jefferson could award Livingston for his loyalty as well as ensure another Democratic-Republican voice was present on the highest court in the land. And thus, on December 13th, he offered the position to Henry Brockholst, who accepted. The Senate quickly confirmed Livingston, and the new justice would take up his duties in the court's February 1807 term. To the disappointment of Jefferson and others in the party, however, as noted by Michael Dugan, quote, those who expected him to be a pillar of opposition to Chief Justice John Marshall were disappointed. Livingston reverted increasingly to the federalism of his youth, and quote, fell under the genial sway of Marshall. Perhaps Jefferson would have better luck with his next appointment to the court because, that's right, dear listener, the president a few months later would have another seat to fill. Unlike his two previous appointments, 
this new vacancy would not come about by the death of a justice. Rather, Congress at the beginning of 1807 decided to amend the Judiciary Act of 1789 and create a seventh federal judicial district in the western states of Kentucky, Ohio, and Tennessee, which thus necessitated the creation of a seventh associate justice position on the high court. Jefferson saw this as an opportunity to have a representative on the court from the West and thus asked the advice of congressional members from those states on who he should consider appointing. Though a number of names were floated about, one was mentioned by nearly everyone that the president spoke with about the position. Like a number of settlers in the West, Thomas Todd had his roots in the state of Virginia. Thomas was born in 1765, nearly 100 years after his first ancestor settled in the Old Dominion. Though his father died when Thomas was young, and the family friend who had been put in charge of administering his inheritance instead ran through all of the funds before Thomas could reach adulthood, Todd was able to gain a good education. After a brief tenure as a private in the Continental Army, Todd enrolled in Liberty Hall, now known as Washington and Lee University, where he graduated in 1783. By this point, with his mother also having passed away, Todd turned to a cousin, Harry Ennis, to help him make his way in the world. When Ennis was appointed as a judge in Kentucky, Todd traveled with the family west. In 1788, Todd was admitted to the bar and began practicing law. As noted by Peter Guardioso, quote, Todd quickly developed a thriving practice, specializing in land and title claims. Todd also served in various clerkships for conventions, courts, and legislative bodies as Kentucky transitioned statehood. In 1801, with over a decade of legal expertise under his belt, Todd was appointed to the state Supreme Court. In 1806, he took over the position of chief judge on that court, and it was there that he was identified by Jefferson as his choice to appoint to the U.S. Supreme Court. Though Todd was confirmed by the Senate on March 3, 1807, he wouldn't take a seat on the court until the February 1808 session. We will talk more about Todd as time goes on. But unlike his colleague Livingston, this first Supreme Court justice from west of the Appalachian Mountains would maintain more of a Democratic-Republican viewpoint in his work on the court. So at least two out of Jefferson's three appointees were successes in Jefferson's aim to shift the Supreme Court's ideological makeup. Before we part ways, dear listener, we must check in on General James Wilkinson down in New Orleans as his activities there will come into play as we get to the Burr trial next episode. When last we left Wilkinson in episode 3.33, he had arrived in New Orleans to take command of the military forces there and combat the potential threat posed by Burr's expedition coming down the Mississippi River. In addition to coordinating with local and territorial leaders, Wilkinson also reached out to Burr's associates in the city to get what information he could from them. Little did they realize at the time that the general's allegiance had flipped once more. But Wilkinson cleared up that misconception on December 14, 1806. Despite Orleans Territorial Governor William C.C. Claiborne denying Wilkinson's request to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, the general just threw constitutional rights to the wayside and ordered the arrest of three borough associates, Eric Bullman, Peter Ogden, and Samuel Swartwell. When word started spreading of Wilkinson's actions, Judge James Workman, quote, issued writs of habeas corpus for the release of all three men, but Wilkinson immediately rearrested them declaring that he took full responsibility and promised to continue to arrest all those against whom I have positive proof of being accomplices in the machinations against the state. 
Judge Workman appealed to Governor Claiborne, but when Claiborne failed to act, Workman resigned from his position. In January, Workman, along with a newly arrived Burr associate, John Adair, were also arrested, and General Wilkinson made plans to ship the whole lot to Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, as described by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, all mail addressed to Burr and his associates was intercepted and opened, and travel outside the city was restricted to those with military permits. The streets were patrolled by detachments of armed soldiers with the power to apprehend anyone the general wanted to detain. Such was his authority. He had only to issue a warrant. The list of his suspects lengthened rapidly, until by February, it extended to printers, legislators, traders, lawyers, and the bar in general. The threat of Burr had allowed Wilkinson to achieve what Burr may have been aiming for without a shot being fired. In the last days of 1806 and early 1807, General James Wilkinson had taken control of New Orleans. With that, we'll close out this episode. But don't worry, there will be more of Wilkinson in the next episode, which I'm calling The Trial. While the focus will, of course, be on the Burr trial, there was also another trial that the Jefferson administration was soon to face. Namely, has anyone noticed all of these British ships that have been hanging out off the coast? Methinks that there may be some trouble brewing. Until then, though, thanks so much again to my husband Alex for providing the intro quote for this episode. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for the Jefferson series. If you'd like to learn more about the Itinerant Band or see the sources used for this episode, you can head over to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. At the website, you can also find past episodes as well as a wealth of resources to learn more about each of the American presidents. I recently had a review left on Apple Podcasts titled Informative Well Done, which read as follows, quote, I enjoy this podcast. The host is thorough and articulate. However, I subtracted a star because the audio quality is subpar. I've only listened to the first several episodes, so maybe the host has improved the sound. Thanks so much to this listener and to everyone who has left the podcast a rating and review. Hopefully, if you have made it to this episode, dear listener, you will hear an improvement over the years. I have gone back myself to listen to the earlier episodes, and believe me, as a self-admitted perfectionist, I cringe a little knowing that the quality could be better. However, it becomes a question of time and effort to record and re-release all of them versus spending that time and effort moving forward with the current work of the podcast. I think for longtime podcasters, it is a question that we all ask ourselves, and different podcasters make different decisions. Maybe one of these days I will go back and re-record those early episodes. However, part of me likes to have them out there as a testament to how far a podcaster can come with experience. And I hope that it does encourage other new podcasters to give it a try and trust that you too will improve with each episode. With that said, whether you're an aspiring podcaster looking for advice or a listener with a question about the content, please feel free to reach out to me. I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. again, all one word. Finally, I can't thank you enough for listening. 
in what has been turbulent times, both personally and in the larger world. It is always a comfort to know that we're all on this journey through presidential history together. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.